All right, tonight we are lighting the peace candle, and I hope someone in the crowd will shout if I start to light the wrong candle, but I've been told it's this candle. Jesus is our peace because Jesus heals, creates, and redeems. As theater people, it would be remiss and probably sacrilege if we didn't bring up one of the most holy scripts for thespians, Rent, and a line that is vigorously sing-shouted is, the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. Now, young me was all about this line, and I would shout it from the rooftops too, but now older me thinks it's a little bit misguided. I think peace is creation. In the last year, as educators, parents, and partners, our world has challenged us in many ways, which has required us to be creative. Creative. We have felt embattled on many sides, and because of prayer and discernment, and through the presence of our Lord Jesus, we have resisted lashing out and fighting back. We have leaned into love, forgiveness, faith, hope, light, and joy. Jesus is our peace because you, our church, our family, have shown us the power of prayer. It is one such prayer slash song that I knew before coming to this church, but I never really felt and I never really lived until we joined this community. And it forms the namesake of the funniest member of this trio up here, um, and we pray it every night. John, Bill, I'm not talking about the Cisco kid, <laughs> but I am talking about the prayer of St. Francis, which we would like to offer up tonight. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Doubt, faith. Despair, hope. Darkness, light, and sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thank you, Mamies. Thank you, Cisco. Well, it's good to be God's people together. It's good to be God's people together in this season of Advent, this season of waiting. And so I would love for you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 1. And if you haven't already, I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to grab one of these communion packs we will be observing the Lord's Supper as we do each week when I'm done talking. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. Last week we looked at Mary, and this week we are looking at her betrothed husband, Joseph. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Advent is the season of waiting and if you're like our daughters or any other children, waiting is hard, 
And it's hard like this week when we have a Lego Advent calendar, and instead of just opening one little compartment a day, sometimes it's hard to wait. Right, Emma? And maybe you want to open five. But it's interesting that the Christian year begins with the season of waiting. Advent is the church's new year. There's something that forms us about waiting, and it's something that's been part and parcel of God's people in our development from Israel and now even today as God's people in expanded Israel, the church. Advent is a season of waiting where we look back and place ourselves with Israel as They were waiting for the first arrival of the Messiah that we recognize in Jesus at Christmas. And now, today, on this side of Christmas, we look forward to his second arrival when he will renew all things. There's something formative about waiting, and we're going to see some formation take place in the life of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. So I hope you're there with me. Let's look at the Holy Father, Joseph, who gets the spotlight just for a moment, and then we don't hear much else about him. But what we see in this scene is pivotal, it is formative, and it's vital to our hope as Christians today. I'm going to start reading in verse 18, and I'm going to go through verse 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Let's pause there real quick. Jesus is a very common name. The Hebrew name is Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. That's why Matthew continues... He will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now let's pause there. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 7. And if Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, was a common name, Emmanuel was a very uncommon name. Not a lot of parents in those days were bold enough to name their son God with us, but there's something about this baby, this child, that can bear and wear this name well. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. As Amy mentioned earlier in the kids' moment, she's a preschool teacher, and so every week, nearly every day, she comes home with some really great stories of the goings-ons of her four- and five-year-olds 
in her day school, her preschool. And so this week, she told me about a day where the thermostat got stuck. It was broken. And so all day, from the very moment they walked in to the end of the day, the thermostat was blowing high. And it was blowing cold. So all day, you have a bunch of four and five-year-olds starting to kind of get a little chill. And one by one by one, they start to grab their jackets. They start to find stray pieces of clothing or blankets. They start to huddle up and they kind of stop moving around and they try to just kind of just grin and bear it. And one by one, as the day went on and that air kept blasting, you just saw each kid bundling up, except one. One little boy found himself a nice little spot in the reading center. And he was unfazed. So every few minutes as all the other kids were doing their thing or Amy was leading them through an arts and crafts, she would say, hey, dude, are you okay? Are you okay, buddy? Are you sure you don't want a jacket? And he goes, I'm fine, Miss Wood. And they keep doing their thing and going about their business. All these other kids are bundled up, but not this little dude in the reading center. And finally, Amy said, are you sure, buddy, that you don't need your jacket? And he said, Miss Wood, I'm fine. I'm being warmed by this fireplace. This fireplace. (laughs) For those of you who can't tell way in the back, this is the fireplace that Amy painted on paper and taped to a wall. You got it now, Mark? (laughs) So here this little dude is just cozied up and kicked back, warming himself by this fire while every other four- and five-year-old is bundled up, freezing in this classroom. Do you know someone that's always calm and collected when everyone around you is just losing their minds? Do we know some of these people? I might think that Robert could be like this as a paramedic. He's been there, done that. When we would be losing our minds, the cool, calm, collected one. The one that has found his perch in the cozy fireplace when everyone around is not sure how they're going to make it through the rest of the day. Is peace, I wonder, even possible when there's just chaos around us? Is it even possible when everyone else around you is saying, it's not okay? Look at the news. Things are not fine. Can't you feel it in the air? Bundle up. It's nuts. Is peace even attainable when there's uncertainty in front of us? How can you be calm and collected? How can you have quote unquote inner peace when outside everything is going nuts? How can we even have peace in this busy season when our moms and mother-in-laws are wanting us to be here and there and we've got to do this and to do that, hypothetically speaking? (laughs) This week, I was talking with someone about peace and I'm thinking and racking my brain all week, are there real viable answers to these questions? When was the last time you experienced peace? This is exactly what Joseph is facing. This is exactly what Joseph is wrestling with. 
This news drops on him of this pregnancy with his betrothed fiance like a ton of bricks, and it feels like chaos. Because to us, it's not an, it may feel like an inconvenience, but to Joseph, it feels like a death sentence. It feels like a death sentence to his beloved, and it also feels like a death sentence to his future. So is peace even possible with chaos? Is peace even attainable when the future is so uncertain? There are two biblical words for peace. You're familiar with one of them. It's Hebrew. Do you know what it is? Shalom. Shalom is a word that, as Miguel said, is bigger than the opposite of war or conflict. It's a word that connotes flourishing or more specifically, wholeness. The Greek word, which is what the New Testament was written in, is erene. And both of these words contain this idea that peace is more than just the absence of conflict. It's also the presence of wholeness. Both of these words involve this idea of making something complete and putting back the pieces of something that's been broken down. Lord willing, this is what we're going to talk about in more detail in a few weeks when we unpack our core practices at the neighborhood church like we do each year. But when you think about peace as not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness, would you remember the last time that you were sitting down and you just felt like all is right with the world? even for just a fleeting moment. How many of you experienced something like this this week? A few of you. How many of you in the last month, November, you were sitting down by a paper fire and everyone is going nuts around you, but you just felt that all was right with the world? I will tell you that even if it's been more than a month, if you've experienced this, what you've experienced is no less than a gift of God and a slice of heaven on earth. And when we think about shalom and flourishing and wholeness, we think about why it's an Advent word. Because we experience now in part and in glimpses and in intuitions and in moments what we long for and hope for and wait for to experience eternally. It's an Advent word because we're waiting for the Prince of Peace to arrive and make good on the promise that really, really, He is making all things new. It's a word for us tonight because peace and wholeness is actually available to us in the midst of busyness and chaos and uncertainty. And I think Joseph shows us we can bring peace to others and we can experience peace in our own heart, even if the journey toward Advent feels more like a lurch than a victory march. We'll see how each of these ideas, peace to others, peace for ourselves, is modeled for us in Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, and our peace mentor for the night. Well, there's a starting line for peace, and I'm going to tell you what it is, but let me ask you this question first. What is a suspicious priest named Zechariah, who was uncertain if these good things this angel told him was going to pass, have in common with a surprised teenager, Mary, 
who is curious of how the mechanics of all this is going to come to pass, also have in common with a sensible husband who feels like a bomb has just gone off in his lap, what do all these three have in common? Faith or lack of faith. Well, that's not quite common if they're two different things. So what might they have in common even in the biblical text? They were all touched by the Holy Spirit. That's correct. They were also visited by an angel. What did this angel say to each of the three of them? Don't be afraid. I think the starting line for peace is to wait just a moment, just long enough to breathe and get our head right when we're visited by chaos and uncertainty. Maybe the starting line is, okay, don't be afraid. Because what this angel visitation and annunciation involved was not just fear and surprise, but the clue that there's something more going on than what we can see with our eyes and experience in our daily life. All of a sudden, the veil gets lifted and they receive this glimpse of the reality that there's more than what we can see, taste, and touch. But the problem with uncertainty and chaos and pain and suffering is that that becomes all we can see. Pain narrows our focus. And so I think the starting line, anything else we can say about peace, shalom, wholeness, flourishing, starts with a recognition that even though it feels like the worst has happened, can we dare to believe there's something more going on and I need not be utterly, wholly afraid. The starting line is to believe that God can work in this because what happens is our situation becomes so big and we are tempted to believe that God is small. When Joseph hears this, is he really thinking, yeah, this sounds exactly like something God will do. Joseph is a man that knows the law, he knows the story, he knows the expectation, he knows what Messiah will look like, and he thinks he knows what Messiah will do, but there is no template for this, and I wonder if the first thing in Joseph's mind after, oh my goodness, there's an angel in my dream, is, are you for real though? Can God really do this? When we're tempted with a big situation To believe that God is small, I think the starting line is to believe that God can and is at work in this. Yes, even that. This is too big. This is too much. There's too many moving pieces. I can't fix this. I can't fix that person. I can't help this situation. Circumstances tempt us to tell us what God is like. And God is inviting us that I'm at work in this and it's not too big for me. Sometimes our road to peace is too long, and it tempts us to believe that God is gone. That's when the angel, after he says, don't be afraid, tells a fearful person, oh, by the way, he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. So when the road to peace is long and it tempts us to believe that God is gone, the starting line is to believe that God with us is actually within reach. I think this is the miracle of Christmas, not just the vulnerability of God become child, Long before God becomes crucified, 
is the fact that God has actually moved into the neighborhood of our pain and our brokenness and wants to experience the human condition so much that he's willing to take on all of our pain and brokenness so that he might recycle it into peace and hope and joy and love. The starting line is to believe that God with us is always within reach. Joseph wakes up and is wondering about this. But I'm interested in the betrothal and the big decision set before him. Y'all are familiar with this word betrothal, right? Maybe not in concept, but in the Christmas story. Let me remind you that a betrothal is way more than our engagement. It wasn't just a happy video and some sweet pictures and a fun video and a down-on-one-knee proposal story. It was a legally binding contract. And they entered into this period of about a year where they said, you in this? They say, yes. And so the man is actually referred to as husband. Did you read in Matthew chapter 1 how many times Joseph was called her husband? That's because they were in this something more than engagement, but something less than marriage. So during the betrothal, they have a year-long period where the husband is called husband, but the woman is still living in her father's house. So during this period of one year, they're legally connected, but they have not yet consummated the marriage. And after a year, what will happen is, The man takes this woman into his house, and there's a public ceremony, and that's when they are officially consummated and marriage happens then. This is why when Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, he's basically betrothing himself to them when he says, hey, don't be afraid. Where I'm going is to my father's house, and he's going to what? Prepare what? A place for you. And you may have to wait a year, but I'm going to come back to you so that where I am in my father's house with so many rooms, rooms enough for all of you, you can then come and be with me where I am also in my father's house. And all y'all thought it was just an audio adrenaline jam that still slaps a little bit, to, to be honest. Come and go with me, betrothed to my father's house. Come and go with me. Okay. Oh, we're doing this? Okay. Big house. I did start it. Lots and lots of room. We got to get it together, neighborhood church. We got to learn what candles to light. We got to stop singing audio adrenaline. We got to, we're doing work here. This betrothal was only dissolved through death or divorce. So Joseph, steeped in the law and steadfast in his faithfulness, could do one of two things. (laughs) He ain't going to kill her, so let's take that off the table. They had read enough and developed enough by this point where he wants to divorce her publicly and make a big show of it if he really believed that she had stepped out on him. He's going to bring the whole town, and they're going to make a big show of it, scarlet letter style, and publicly disown her. Or he's going to divorce her quietly, which is what 
Matthew tells us he wants to do. What quietly means is two witnesses, hush, hush, we're going to dissolve it this way. Everybody would still know that she was supposed to be married to him, and this kid showed up, so either way, Mary's got a target on her back. And Joseph, between verses 19 and 20, is probably the opposite of peace. He's feeling the opposite of whole, the opposite of flourishing, and he's feeling a great sense of conflict with him and his God. Because he knows Deuteronomy 22. He knows Leviticus. He knows what is supposed to happen by letter of the law to adulterers, and he's saying, God, is she an adulterer, or are you really in this? What gets lost in so many of these Christmas sermons is whether or not Joseph didn't just have a crisis with his betrothed, but if he had a crisis with his God. Because he's being challenged here to say, God, you are acting outside of the boundaries of what I have learned is good and decent and right. Are you really doing this? I'm interested in what's happening in between verses 19 and 20. Because there's no template for this. And there hasn't been since. And you sit there and say, yeah, there's no template in Scripture for what I'm going through either. Because I've read it, and I've read all of this, that, and the other, but there's nothing exactly thus saith the Lord for my situation. By the way, there's not always an angel in verse 20 to show up at your door and say, hey, do this next. I know that you've been praying. I know that you've been asking. I know that you've been waiting. God hasn't sent an angel to you in your dreams last night, did he? There's no template. There's no angel. There's not always a dream that just impresses you on the way you should go. But just because there's no template or no thus saith the Lord in your precise moment, I do believe that there are tools that we have to seek and bring and live in peace when we're faced with the kind of crisis that Joseph is doing. And it's this, sitting, chewing, and consulting. I think that there's enough we can deduce between verses 19 and 20 that you can honestly answer me this question. Do you think that Joseph really sat with God to discern his heart? If Joseph is a righteous man steeped in the law, steeped in the faith... Can you look me in the eye and tell me that Joseph didn't sit with God and pour it all out to him? Or did he? he of, of course he did. What would you do? You would be wondering, searching, seeking. You would sit with God to discern his heart. Do you think you could tell me, even though it's not explicitly written in this text, that Joseph didn't chew on every verse he had ever heard in the synagogue about what is going on with this adulterous situation? Or is God doing something bigger with the outsiders and the unlikely people? He is chewing and meditating on everything that has gone before him, the tradition of his people wrestling with the divine, and he's chewing and wondering, is there anything that can give me anything of people who've wrestled with this God before. Can you tell me that Joseph did not chew on Scripture and the law and searching for any way where it didn't end in Mary's stoning? Of course he did. Can you not tell me that Joseph, 
who resolved to divorce her quietly didn't consult with the two witnesses that would have to show up at the city gate to make this thing official. You can't tell me that he didn't pull his two closest confidants in and saying, listen, dude, this is what she's saying. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Do you think Joseph did that or didn't do that? We don't have it here, but you can't tell me that he didn't sit with God, chew on scripture, and consult with his brothers and sisters. So, you may not have a template, you may not have an angel, you may not have this, but let me tell you what you do have, a chair to sit with Jesus in. To discern, to breathe, to get rooted and say, here is my situation, Would you breathe peace? Would you breathe wisdom? You know the thing about wisdom, James tells us, if any of you lack it, ask. And he may not give you an angel, but he'll give it to you beyond measure. You can sit with Jesus, you can still your heart and breathe and try to discern the heart of God when you don't have a template for what's ahead. You know what? We have scripture and you can chew and meditate, which is the Hebrew word for it anyway. It's like a cow chews the cud. They say we meditate on Scripture. You know what the Bible is? It is a record of people who have wrestled with the unseen and unknowable God. And they say this is our best guess at how we know him. And it's tried and it's true. And there's enough in here that draws us and shapes us and guides us where we don't have the particulars. We know enough to know what God's heart is like. And it leads us enough when we chew and digest this toward life. Finally, do we consult with other brothers and sisters to discern the next best step on the road that we all say we're walking together? There is an idol of individuality in this nation that tells us it's okay to laugh together, but really don't cry together. It's okay to spend time together. It's not okay to struggle together. It gets too messy. It gets too hard. And I'm here to tell you that the Jesus way is the messy way of relationship because God with us desires in us. And this church is here, not because we have all the answers, but because we have your back. And we want to pray together and walk together. And we were talking even today, Ramon and I, about those times of death and what it looks like in funerals and difficulty to just show up, even if you don't have all the answers. You can sit with Jesus You can chew on scripture. You can consult with other brothers and sisters. Or do we run ahead with our own impulse instead of sitting with Jesus, leaving him in the dust? Or do we consume a steady stream of things to numb us out instead of being rooted and grounded and wrestling with scripture and the tradition of those who've walked before us? Do we consume all of these other things and all these other posts or do we see the sheet music of prayer that's gone before us like Miguel quoted St. Francis? And finally, do we consult with other brothers and sisters or do we hide our true selves and our true situations from those whose wisdom, grace, and insight could actually help guide you? Because you may not have ever heard an angel, but I guarantee you every person in this room has heard the voice of God through people that look a lot like 
us. When you sit down and process in real time, in real space with one another. God has given us a people when he doesn't give us angels and dreams. God has given us a spirit that knits us together and unites us in the bond of peace when we don't have an angel and a dream. One of the practices and the helps to this that I want to commend to you, somebody showed me this a month ago. It's an app on your phone. And so you're forgiven if you need to grab, grab your phone right now and open up the app store because I want to commend this to you. It's called Lectio 365, L-E-C-T-I-O 365. It's similar to Pray As You Go that some people have enjoyed in our church. It's similar to the daily prayer app that some of us in our church have used. This is a brand new one, probably been around for a while, but it's new to me. I commend it to you. It's called Lectio 365. It's a daily prayer app for morning prayer and evening prayer. And they're audio recorded, so if you want to listen to it, they're literally 9 to 10 minutes long. But every single day in the morning prayer, it's centered around this acronym for PRAY, P-R-A-Y. The first every day is to pause, then you rejoice and reflect, that's the R, and then you ask, and then you yield. And they give you thoughts and prompts and scripture, and you listen to it twice like you would in Electio Divina. And I love the questions, the insights, but the thing I love the most is always in the pray pause, the P of pray. It's always these words, and if you download it, you're going to love the guy that's reading them this week. He's got an amazing accent. So now, if I haven't like really gotten your phone going and downloading, I don't know what will, because you got to hear this guy's voice. But he says these words. As I enter prayer now, I pause to be still, to breathe slowly, and to recenter my scattered senses upon the presence of God. And I just wonder if Joseph didn't enter into prayer, pause to be still, to breathe slowly, and to recenter his scattered senses upon the presence of God. Before he heard Messiah's name, God with us, I wonder if he knew by intuition the very presence of the one who was with him in his chaos and uncertainty. So I want to do this now. And I want to do it with our kids that are here sitting with us. Because if you can't create space for quiet in the midst of the noises of everyday life, you'll never be able to do it. So could we pause I'm going to give you two thoughts, a quote, and a scripture and be done. Could you pause now to be still, to breathe slowly, and to recenter your scattered senses upon the presence of God?
God, we are present to your presence. And we ask that you would move in us. That you would nudge us. That we would create more space to sit with you and to be still as we have in these moments. Amen. What Joseph did, his first big decision, was to lead with grace, and it brings peace to others. I think that the pausing to be still in between verse 19 and 20 is what gave him just enough peace to respond and lead with grace, to bring peace to Mary. And he changed his trajectory Instead of divorce, instead of a disorientation, instead of a a disfigurement of her reputation, he led with grace. And I just wonder, as a preacher said in New York, preaching on this, I heard she said, the baby was already working in the life of his adopted father, Joseph. Because this one to be born was full of grace and truth. And he always shows us another way when we feel like there is no way. Joseph leads with grace and it brings peace to others. And it's the invitation for us as well. The second big decision is after he woke up from that dream, between verses 19 and 20, Joseph chose to trust God and it brings peace to his heart. Do you understand how many people he knows won't believe him? Do you understand how he might have a whisper in the back of his head at month number six, seven, or eight when they start to make their way to Bethlehem? Yeah, but what if it isn't true? But it's another invitation to trust God with that. It's another invitation to trust that God is at work. And what else can we do but fix our eyes, root our heart, and walk with the hope that God with us is really with us. So Joseph will choose to take Mary and the child into his home, watch this, and establish the prophetic line because it was Joseph who was of the house of David. And then Joseph will do what the angel said and name the child Jesus, which is part of the legal adoption process to establish him as a son a son of David. It's through adoption and it's through his willingness to bring this young woman into his home that he will be used to bring in the Prince of Peace to the world. And this happened because he chose peace. I love this quote from the anonymous author of the pivotal contemplative work called The Cloud of Unknowing, the first book written in English. Granted, it was written in Middle English, so that's why you'll see this translation here. This is from the second chapter. He's not asking for your help. He's asking for you. He wants you to lock your eyes on him and leave him alone to work in you. Your part is to protect the door and windows keeping out intruders and flies. Centuries ago, in his Middle English, he knew what Joseph modeled and countless other saints 
what it means to fix our eyes and to let God work peace within our hearts. It's your job to protect the door, which is a metaphor for your heart, and windows, which is a metaphor for your eyes, and let the one who brings peace and is peace and the gift of the Holy Spirit that is love, joy, and peace to do its work within you so that you might be rooted and grounded when there's chaos around you and everybody's bundling up and wondering why you're so warm by the fire. Because he's not asking for you to win the world. He's the one that's going to bring shalom ultimately. He's asking for your surrender and your availability to do what Joseph did and after wrestling, choose to trust God and lead with grace. So finally, I close with the verse I told you I'd read. And it's the prayer that I most often pray when there's a lack of peace. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I prayed this for someone this week because we do not and cannot understand the things we deal with. We pray this prayer because we don't understand, but we ask and we trust. We pray for the peace that transcends all understanding because we don't understand the circumstances that bring us to our knees. But we can choose like Joseph did to lead with grace. We can choose to wrestle, to sit, and to trust God through it. And this peace that at once seems impossible and elusive might just begin to do its work within us and it might just begin to do its work to guard our hearts, our minds, our windows and doors, protecting us for our Advent journey. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the peace of God that transcends all understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that we would fix our eyes on you, turn our face toward you, and move our feet with courage toward the one who calls us beloved, and is beckoning us to come to him and to follow him. Would you lead us and guide us, surround and sustain us? Through Christ our Lord, amen. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen, and go in peace.